and welcome to Ox Tales, the podcast that serves up stories about history and the foods that make it from the Oxford Food Symposium. I'm your host, Anna Sigrether. Every week on the podcast, we pick one paper from the symposium's long history and bring in its author to help us tell their story. We are back with season two of Ox Tales, and we can't wait for you to hear all that we've got in store over the next eight weeks. There are nine fantastic guests from all over the world, telling stories that range from mythical acorn-based civilizations to overnight coffee plantation millionaires to the eating of opium poppies. If you want to check out that lineup in advance and to read more on our guests, visit our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash podcast. And one last thing before we start. Oxtails is produced by a tiny team and backed by an educational nonprofit organization. So if you, like me, are so excited that season two is finally out and you are able, please consider supporting Oxtails by making a donation on our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk, or UK listeners can make a one-time donation of £20 by texting the word OXTALES20, that is O-X-T-A-L-E-S-2-0, to 70085. Again, that is O-X-T-A-L-E-S-2-0, no spaces, to 70085. Now on to today's story, which, appropriately for the first episode of the season, takes us back to the beginning. Like, the actual beginning. Of life. About 4.28 billion years ago, Earth was a bubbling stew of elements and chemicals floating around in watery pools, lovingly known as the primordial soup. These elements would sometimes bump into each other and react to create chemical compounds, which would then react to create even more complex chemical compounds. Over hundreds of millions of years, this bumping into each other and reacting kept happening at a faster and faster rate until some of these now extremely intricate molecules began to replicate themselves. Eventually, and by reasons that are still mysterious, these self-replicating chemical units transcended their existence as mere molecules and became cells. Encapsulated, genetic information-containing, self-replicating units of life. The first microorganisms, bacteria and archaea. These single-celled critters needed to be able to produce energy to survive. And so one of the earliest processes that emerged for this, also called a metabolism, is one that hasn't changed much in billions of years. We call it fermentation. And without fermentation, there would be no us. And joining us to explain how is this guy. All right. Well, my name is Sandor Katz. Uh, I call myself a fermentation revivalist, and I'm very interested in um, uh, uh, gardening and agriculture and food preservation and a whole set of um, associated issues. But uh, mostly I focus on fermentation in my work. If you're interested in fermentation, you've probably read one of Sandor's many books. He's been writing and teaching about fermentation for more than 20 years and is considered by many as the leader of the modern fermentation movement. But today, our story is focused around one really compelling argument that Sandor makes, which he wrote about in 2010 for the Oxford Symposium, and which became the opening chapter in his book, The Art of Fermentation. The argument that he makes is that the act of fermenting foods has had a much bigger impact on humanity than we might normally think of it, in a culinary sense. Sandor says that fermentation has been, and continues to be, 
a big player in our evolution on many scales. That fermentation is a co-evolutionary force. What does this mean? To answer that, we need some definitions. So let's start with fermentation. Yeah, sure. So, I, I mean, you know, the, the short definition that I would typically share with people is that fermentation is the transformative action of microorganisms. And in a food and beverage context, I think that, um, you know, this, this, this definition really describes fermentation uh, uh, very well because that's what, um, uh, that, that's the common strand running be, between, um, you know, all of these uh, disparate foods and beverages that we describe as fermented. They're, they're produced by the, by the, um, you know, transformative action of bacteria and different types of fungi. So that's what, um, you know, beer and cheese and bread and sauerkraut and yogurt uh, and chocolate and coffee have in common. Um, is that they're products of the transformative action of microorganisms. Um, you know, if, if I'm talking to a biologist, um, you know, I now know that they understand fermentation in uh, uh, somewhat different terms. And to a biologist, fermentation describes anaerobic metabolism, the production of energy without oxygen. So we have this technical definition, metabolism without oxygen, and then we have the food definition, most of the foods and beverages that I just described would meet the biologist's definition. For instance, Sandor says, take some milk, ferment it into yogurt. That's an anaerobic process that does not require oxygen. Take some grapes, ferment them into wine. That's an anaerobic process that does not require oxygen. The, the problem with this definition is that there are a large handful of microbially transformed foods and beverages that do require oxygen. So, you know, if we take the wine that we just produced by anaerobic processes and we leave it exposed to air, there are bacteria that we call acetobacter that in the presence of oxygen will metabolize the alcohol into acetic acid, vinegar. So, so, so to make vinegar, which everybody thinks of as a fermented uh, uh, product, um, you need oxygen. So not all fermented foods are technically fermented from a biological standpoint. This is an important distinction, and this is what Sandor is most interested in. These cultural relationships we've grown to certain microorganisms that together we call fermentation. But I always have to point out to people that, um, you know, we don't call every result of microbial transformation fermentation. Um, you know, if you find a... Um, you know, a little uh, a plastic bag of parsley that got forgotten in the back of a drawer of your refrigerator and has decomposed, um, you know, we don't say, oh, look, the parsley fermented. You know, we have a different vocabulary to describe this, and we call it spoiled or rotten or decomposed, um, but we reserve the word fermentation to describe intentional or desirable microbial transformations. Before we get to talking more about these desirable microbial transformations, we do have to do a little more biology first. Remember the first single-celled life that emerged from the primordial soup? Well, obviously life didn't stop there. Billions of years later, here we all are. And up until the 1960s, nobody really knew what the missing link was between single-celled bacteria and organisms like us, multicellular forms of life. Bacteria and archaea are known as prokaryotes cells without the nucleus that stores genetic information. All other forms of life, like plants, fungi, animals, we are eukaryotes, 
meaning we do have nuclei and fixed genetic information. And 60 years ago, nobody really knew how eukaryotes, well, happened. And then the biologist Lynn Margulis proposed an idea that would turn out to be one of the biggest things in evolution since natural selection. And her, her central idea is that eukaryotic cells, which are the basis of all multicellular life forms, emerged from uh, a symbiosis among smaller, simpler life forms, bacteria and archaea. What Margulis proposed, and what we now know is true, is that way back when, certain microbes swallowed up other microbes, maybe to eat them, maybe accidentally, and some of those eaten microbes survived inside the eater. Eventually, the two combined to become one new type of cell. Um, you know, two formerly independent cells learned that each could benefit from, from this association and uh, uh, develop the means to coordinate their reproduction. And, you know, so symbiogenesis is really the, the simple idea that it is through, um, you know, symbiotic relationships like this that, um, um, you know, evolution and development of more complex forms of life has occurred. You know, you could think of us all as bacterial superstructures. The other, you know, the, the, the other side of this coin is that, you know, if all life is descended from bacteria, no form of life has ever lived without bacteria. And so, you know, all of, all of the more, you know, sort of elaborate multicellular forms of life, such as ourselves, um, you know, live with and are dependent upon bacteria. Fermentation is all around us creating the conditions that support life at every scale. The oxygen in our atmosphere, soil creation, photosynthesis, decomposition, ocean nutrient cycling, and in our own individual bodies. In the past decade or so, there's been a, a recognition that the number of bacterial cells that we each carry vastly outnumber um, our bodily cells, the cells that um, you know reflect our uh, our DNA. And not only is our digestion uh, uh, tied into the bacteria in our intestines, but our immune function, um, our brain chemistry, really almost every aspect of our um, physiological functionality. Basically, if you could somehow get rid of all of your endemic microbes, also known as your microbiome, you probably wouldn't survive very long. And then if you look at plants, you know, plants are the same way. Plants produce these um, um, compounds which are exuded through their roots in order to draw the bacteria they need to them. And so, um, you know, all life forms are these sort of, you know, complex um, uh, communities and relationships and, and symbioses among different forms of life. None of us exist um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a purely independent way. It's come to be this way over billions of years. And going back to Sandor's big idea, this is what co-evolution is. Organisms influencing each other in the pursuit of survival and thriving over time. And just like the definition of fermentation, co-evolution isn't restricted to what's happening at the cellular biological level. For humans, at least, it has a social component as well. You know, I think that one key distinction that, that I add is that, well, you know, we, we have our 
genes. We have our genetic programming. Similarly, the, you know, the bacteria that are part of us, the plants that we eat, the animals that we eat and interact with, you know, each have our genetic programming. But in, in humanity, with um, a, a culture, we have sort of supplemented the genetic information that is biologically passed down from generation to generation with important cultural information. You know, it's not programmed into our genes, but, but really part of what defines culture is this idea that it's being passed down from generation to generation. And so, you know, language would be one very basic example of that. So, uh, you know, I mean, language changes over time, but each generation is learning language from, you know, from the previous generations. And, you know, another uh, critical part of this cultural information that gets passed down from generation to generation would be, um, you know, how we feed ourselves. You know, what, uh, you know, what plants we harvest and when. The techniques for cultivation. The techniques for preservation. Which, of course, included fermentation. It was figuring out how to best create these selective environments that Sandor argues is so central to our development as humans. And um, there's a certain inevitability to microbial transformation of our food. You know, it's not necessarily pretty, but that's why our ancestors in every part of the world developed techniques, because they observed that, you know, under certain conditions, microorganisms on the food would make it decompose into a disgusting, ugly mess that nobody would ever put into their mouths. And under other conditions, you know, I would call it creating a selective environment, um, you know, actually the food would be enhanced in some way and made more delicious, more digestible, more stable, um, or some other um, practical benefit. The difference between that slimy parsley in the bottom of the fridge and, say, a delicious, crunchy sauerkraut is huge. And Sandor says that the fermentation arts are proof of an extremely nuanced understanding of our natural environment from very early times. This cultural knowledge has bonded humans all over the world to the landscape, where the fermented flavors of the region are a huge part of defining who we are. Whenever groups have had to move from their homelands, they would take some sourdough or yogurt starter with them. So no matter where they ended up, there was a taste of home. Not only have fermented foods been appreciated for their tastiness the world over, they've often been given symbolic meaning too. Think about the wine used in a Catholic Mass, the fermentation of the grapes symbolizing another transformation. And looking at surviving indigenous cultures, I mean, there's a huge amount of ritual and ceremony organized around fermentation. And, um, you know, in some cultural contexts, there was the idea that you, you know, let's say you're making some alcohol and, and, and one of the hallmarks of alcohol fermentation is it becomes bubbly. So there was this idea that like in some places that like, you know, we have to sing and dance and basically teach the alcohol how to become active and bubbly. And so, you know, there'd be singing and dancing in some other cultural context. There's, a, there's the idea that it needs silence and stillness. And so there was this idea of like protecting the ferments from, you know, sort of too much noise and activity. But I think, you know, what, what unifies both of those approaches is the recognition that there's, you know, there, 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 there's something mystical going on. There's some like divinity in, in, in this process. Different cultures, of course, personified fermentation differently. 
But it seems universally recognized, even long before microscopes were invented, that fermenting food was more than just undergoing a passive degradation that there was an animating force behind the changes. And so, so it, is, it is interesting that, um, you know, sort of science is coming around to some of the same conclusions that many traditional cultures intuitively understood. Some people might say that we humans have been pretty clever to have figured out how to do all this fermenting. But Sandor adds a codicil to such self-congratulation. Instead of thinking only about humans and what we've done, why not consider how the microbes might have influenced the equation? Yeah, it's funny. In my um, um, you know research and reading about fermentation, I, I, I found this book that was written in the uh, 1930s or 40s, and they describe microorganisms as you know man's most numerous servants. And it sort of made me chuckle because you know you can you could sort of turn the whole thing around and say like, oh, okay, well actually you know maybe it's the other way around, and maybe by um, growing you know vast acreages of of grape monocultures all around the world and, um, you know, by growing barley that we malt and make beer out of um, and by having bakeries everywhere and growing wheat, we're growing all these crops to feed Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Saccharomyces cerevisiae is the yeast species responsible for some of the most widely consumed ferments on the planet wines, beers, and bread. Because of our love of these products, as Sandor just said, we dedicate immense amounts of time and energy to feed it. Talk about co-evolutionary success. But Saccharomyces hasn't always been the only microorganism we've relied on for such foods. How did this one little yeast, pardon my pun, rise to the top? That story starts in the 19th century in France, with a chemist named Louis Pasteur. Ever drank pasteurized milk? That Pasteur. Louis Pasteur was a French uh, chemist, and the father of one of his chemistry students was a winemaker. And it was during the Industrial Revolution, and uh, you know all forms of uh, production were being scaled up. And um, you know, winemaking has always been based upon the wild yeasts that are present on the grapes, and a high degree of variability has always been part. Of that process. So, in the context of the Industrial Revolution and scaling up production, the costs of this, um, you know, variability became greater. And um, and so, this winemaker was trying to figure out how to have more consistent results. And he hired Louis Pasteur to, um, you know, investigate the process and try to develop some methods to um, uh, have more consistent results in winemaking. And what he found in his investigation was that heating up the grape juice to a certain temperature and then keeping it sealed prevented any fermentation from happening. In other words, he showed that fermentation was caused by living organisms, which you could both kill and selectively grow. And actually, you know, Louis Pasteur became something of a renegade because the, the chemistry academy that existed at that time, you know, was really trying to, um, you know, sort of marginalize his, his work and dismiss the conclusions that he had come to. But, but meanwhile, the, the winemaker was able to, you know, um, apply his methods successfully. And his methods basically involved isolating strains of yeast and propagating them and then pasteurization 
the word that we see on every carton of milk was originally a process that was applied to wine. If you heat up the grape juice to a certain point, you kill all of the native yeast and bacteria that are present, and then you have a basically like a, a, a more or less sterile substrate in which you introduce the, um, uh, the selected strain of yeast. That strain of yeast? Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Now in every supermarket around the world, you can buy a little packet of yeast. And although yeast has been in use for thousands of years, you know, yeast as a separate fungus that's been propagated and put in a little package is, is really a 20th century phenomenon. And so this little packet started to take over replacing the old, biodiverse, albeit unpredictable, fermentation techniques, first in industrial brewing and baking, and then in the home. This was not just a turning point in fermentation, but in our understanding and relationship to microorganisms in general. As Louis Pasteur, you know, continued his investigations and and the field of microbiology began to emerge, like really the, the earliest triumphs of the field of microbiology, aside from, um, you know, making for greater predictability in um, um, uh, industrial winemaking, um, was identifying um, bacteria that were vectors of um, specific diseases. Remember, cops and sneezes spread diseases. And, and I would say that in the popular imagination, bacteria became equated with danger, disease, and death. And certainly, you know, in, the, in my growing up in the, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, I would say that's all I ever heard about bacteria. Like, you know, you need to protect yourself from bacteria. The war on germs had begun. Remember, don't spread germs. Which is where we find ourselves today, more or less. Industrialized, pasteurized foods, combined with an outsized fear of bacteria and germs, has meant that in much of the world, we haven't been exposed to nearly as many bacteria as our ancestors were. But this hasn't necessarily been making us healthier. Most of what we would describe as, as our immune system is the work of bacteria that, that, are, that are part of us. And, and the immune system learns from exposure to diverse bacteria. And, um, you know, some of the researchers who are looking into the dramatic rise in childhood um, allergies and asthma have observed that basically it's a result of insufficient exposure to diverse bacteria, that we're basically overprotecting our children and in doing so, we're depriving them from um, um, exposure to diverse bacteria that would enable their immune systems to develop. We are just beginning to realize bacteria's importance now after nearly a century of living with the credo of sanitize and a food system that has rendered most foods packaged and sterile. Remember prokaryotes and eukaryotes? Well, one of the things that makes bacteria uniquely powerful is their free-floating prokaryotic genetic information. And, um, you know, that's a large part of what gives them this, you know, incredible adaptive potential. So if there's a compound that, you know, kills some kind of bacteria, if they're able to sort of, you know, find the genes that would enable them to withstand it, they can incorporate them. Um, and so, um, so, you know, bacteria evolve um, uh, uh, very quickly. Antibiotic-resistant superbugs, for example... But then, you know, to flip things around and just think about the importance of eating probiotic foods, bacterially rich foods, um, 
you know, it's it's so that, you know, we can have this adaptive potential as part of ourselves, because, you know, in this, um, you know, in this rapidly sort of, you know, changing earth where the ability to adapt is really the, the ultimate tool, we need all the adaptive potential we can get. And, um, you know, an embrace of bacteria, in particular, an embrace of bacteria as part of our food, I think is a great way to, um, you know, make sure we are increasing biodiversity, uh, you know, in our own bodies and, you know, max maximizing, um, you know, our adaptive potential by, by embracing, you know, the presence of bacteria within us. Our bacterial superstructureness is becoming more and more evident the more we learn. But knowing what we already do, it's not difficult to see why Sandor has dedicated his life to preaching the gospel of what he calls wild fermentation, fermenting without that little packet. Fermenting offers a deeper connection between human, landscape, history, and other species of life that can be accessible from our own kitchens. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to oversell it and say, like, you know, fermentation is, you know, is the answer to all of our problems. And um, and that if people just begin fermenting automatically, it's going to you know, repair the environment and sort of, you know, um, we will be one with the environment and everything will be better. But I think that, you know, fermentation is a way of becoming more connected to our food and becoming more aware of the environment around us and, you know, the other life forms that are always around us. And I think that, you know, I mean, everyone who I talk to who gets involved in, in cultivating microorganisms, it, um, you know, it sparks, uh, uh, it sparks a certain kind of a, of a wonder and growing uh, awareness. Just as with fermentation, when we say culture, we can mean several things at once. A packet of wine yeast? That's a culture. Religion that says fermented wine is blood? That's also culture. None of this would be possible with one species going at it alone. For Sandor, this seems to be the crux of fermentation. Letting go of that human-centric idea that we have to do this all on our own, and instead reveling in our dependence and the relationships we have to other life forms. Relationships that continue to shape who and what we are, in delicious, intoxicating, and enriching ways. You might even say that fermentation has cultured us. Thanks for listening to Oxtails. Please subscribe to us and rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Big thanks to today's guest, Sandor Katz. You can find his symposium paper, Fermentation as a Co-Evolutionary Force, in the 2010 Symposium Proceedings at oxfordsymposium.org.uk slash proceedings slash downloads. Sandor's website is wildfermentation.com, and you can follow him on all social media at Sandor Kraut. Oxtails is produced by me, Anna Sigrether, and mixed by Thomas Krauss. Editorial oversight is provided by Fiona Sinclair and Naomi Duguid. Our theme music is by Thomas Krauss. Oxtails is made possible both by the Friends and the Board of Trustees of the Oxford Food Symposium. If you like what we're doing and you want to help us make Season 3 a reality, please consider making a donation to our website, oxfordsymposium.org.uk, or UK listeners can donate £20 conveniently by texting the word OXTALES20 to 70085. That's O-X-T-A-L-E-S-2-0 to 70085. 
Other music in this episode was by Ava Glendinning, Thomas Krauss, Sarah Afonso, and Sam Bikov. Other sounds accessed from freesound.org and archive.org. Follow us on Twitter, at Oxford Food Simp, and Instagram, at Oxford Food Symposium. And if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to us, and please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's it for now, and we'll be back next week with some more Oxtails.